Proverbs chapter 17 this evening, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and here we are in Proverbs. If you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now. Just wave and get their attention. They'll get you a Bible. You'll be fairly lost in the book of Proverbs without the ability to see these Proverbs with your own eyes. Well, here's this book of Proverbs. We come back to it after a little bit of an absence, and the theme of the book is wisdom. You might have noticed I'm not really hurrying through the book of Proverbs. You say, well, he just, that's his way. Well, it is, but I'm just, just being like crazy reckless with the church. Um, I'm not hurrying for a reason that every one of these Proverbs has the potential to change a person's entire life. And the problem is, is I'm very well aware of it. That's why some people, when they go through the reading the book of uh, Proverbs, some of them read a chapter a day uh, each month, and they're continually in the book of Proverbs. And there's a way where, you know, after you absorb several of them, it's almost like you hit overload in terms of absorption or in terms of uh, application. But there's not much we can do about that and still get through uh, the book. But it's very, very good. The book is to come in and recalibrate our lives. It speaks to us, things that we've never heard before. We never had a mother or a father speak these things to us in our life. Never an uncle or a grandmother or a grandfather who's going to tell us these things. And, and our lives and eternities can hang in the balance on it unless God tells us these things. And then what we hear, we forget unless somebody brings it to our remembrance. And so that's what the book does is sometimes it reminds us of something. So, oh, I've lost sight of that. All right, I'm going to dial that back in as a priority in my life. And it does that. The other thing I like about the book of Proverbs and just kind of going slowly through it is it reminds me I'm not crazy. Because this wisdom that's in this book, that's, that was the world that I grew up in, in the United States of America. These were the influences. These were the things that fashioned you, even if your parents were crazy or whatever, and, or neglectful or whatever it might be. Someone was going to build this in some way into your life, a teacher or somebody but the wisdom of God is so being flung so far away today and being treated so casually and disrespectfully that sometimes I just need to hear God say it again so that I realize, all right, I'm not crazy. The world is crazy, and I better stick to God's way because everything else comes crumbling down sooner or later, whether it's nations or uh, cities or whether it's individuals. And so thankful for this book. We pick it up in chapter 17, verse 20. Solomon writes by the Spirit, He who is, has a deceitful, and that means a distorted or a twisted heart, finds no good. In other words, God won't bless him. And he who has a perverse tongue falls into evil. And so Solomon is telling us that a deceitful heart and a perverse tongue can only lead to loss and to evil in life. And it's true, isn't it? So many people, they only go so far in life because 
their tongue and their speech is so unruly, so offensive, uh, so inconsiderate, so damaging and harmful that they set their own ceiling for where they're going to end up in life. And much of where we end up in life is controlled by our speech. And so the importance of paying heed to it. And the reason that is that Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What comes out of my mouth is a reflection of what's inside of me. It's the way to take, you want to take a, if we got a flu season, isn't it? I mean, everybody and their brothers got the flu and everybody who isn't is uh, praying that those of you who do are not overly contagious. But if you want to take somebody's temperature, you put the thermometer inside their mouth, you get their physical temperature. You want to know the spiritual temperature of a person, the thermometer is what's coming out of our mouth. That's the reflection of our heart. And that's why the book of Proverbs speaks so much to our speech. Verse 21, he who begets a scoffer, and that's speaking of an arrogant person, uh, so as a child, he who begets a scoffer does so to his uh, uh, sorrow, and the father of a fool has no joy. And so this proverb speaks to one of the greatest sorrows in life, and that is for a parent to have a child that is both stupid and arrogant. And the word fool means stupid. And I don't glory in it, but a child can be stupid. And a child can be stupid. And the only thing worse than being a stupid kid is to be arrogant on top of it and not to know that you're stupid. And it's one of the great heartaches for a parent is to have that kind of a a child. And so it teaches us not to be that to a, a parent it's a, it's a shame. It's a terrible reflection upon a child who becomes that for their parents. Verse 21, a very different uh, kind of proverb from what we just read, thankfully. A merry heart does good like medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. And so uh, being, having a cheerful disposition... Uh, being a merry person, being a positive person, it's physically, it's good for you. And, of course, all of the studies show it. I mean, they just confirm the Word of God, whether they want to study life by the telescope or the microscope or the mind or the body or the, whatever it might be or the heart or the emotions. The Word of God is true. So our inner attitudes really have an impact upon our physical health. And to be an optimistic person, to have a merry heart, has a beneficial effect upon a person physically. The second half of the proverb says, a crushed, and the idea is a depressed or a saddened spirit, dries the bones. In other words, it just takes the life uh, right out of you. Now, sometimes you think, oh boy, I came to church a little depressed. I think I'm in trouble. What can I do? Well, thankfully... The Bible teaches that as a Christian, there's always a cause for joy in our lives. No matter what's going on in our life, we can turn one of the most famous verses in the Bible, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We can know this is working together for good in my life and conforming me into the image of Christ because I love God and I'm the called according to His purposes. It was a funny thing. Pastor Chuck's gone to be with the Lord now. and um, But you could... One of the interesting things about his life is whatever was happening 
in his life personally. He never really let that out too much, certainly not problems or anything. If you ever got a chance to uh, go up to Pastor Chuck and say, Hi, Chuck, or hi, Pastor Chuck, how are you doing? He'd always say, Great. And you just, you know, and then sometimes you might know personally, wow, what he is going through at the moment. But he would say great, not because, boy, he's just fibbing or something like that, but because he held on to the promises of God. Things are going great. I just can't see it yet in its fullness. And it had an impact upon what a positive person he was in a, in a biblical sense, in a, in a good sense. And I think there's really something uh, to, to uh, learn from that. Verse 23, a wicked man accepts a bribe behind the back to pervert the ways of justice. And so it's a wicked man or a w- wicked um, government official who accepts secret bribes from someone in order to corrupt uh, justice. And so that, of course, will undermine the judicial system of any nation. Once you have, once you have corruption, lawlessness, uh, where decisions are being made on the basis of bribes rather than on the basis of God's definitions of right and wrong. Now, when officials do that, then a corruption has been introduced into a government and into a nation, and it won't be long uh, before it will then characterize that nation. And you end up with a banana republic. You end up where the only thing, once the corruption moves, is allowed to establish itself in government, move down into the nation itself, then it takes a revolution to overthrow it and, and get a fresh start. And so... Uh, the call to be for a people to be uh, very, very uh, demanding or very, very strong in the sentences and the punishments that are meted out for government officials or people in authority who use that position to enrich themselves through bribes to overthrow um, uh, justice. And we see that. I mean, there was that congressman in Louisiana or somewhere where he what do he have? Half a million dollars or $50,000 given as a bribe, and he kept it hidden in his freezer. And, and this is why even with um, uh, increasingly, even in the federal government, we see lawlessness. We see not necessarily with bribes. Of course, everything's a bribe today because you're scratching somebody's back that's making some money off of some decision, and then you pull those favors a little bit later. So it's a bit of a mess till the Lord gets back. But this lawlessness in terms of just making decisions uh, outright without respect for all three branches of the government and this kind of thing. And it's, um, it, brings, it brings bad things upon a nation, and it should uh, be resisted. It's the beginning of the end if it, if it really becomes characteristic of leaders. Verse 24, wisdom is in the sight of him who has understanding but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. And so Solomon is saying that wisdom is right in front of every single person in the world who wants it. Really? Where is it? It's as close as the nearest Bible. It's that close. And he says the fool rejects that kind of wisdom because it is so near, because it's so common, it's so readily available. Their eyes are on the ends of the earth. And it is interesting. Um, sometimes 
it, the testimony v- uh, has variations within it. So you think about how many uh, young uh, men and women are raised in Christian homes. They're raised in a Christian church that is solid and has given them a good foundation to be successful in adult life. And then as soon as they're able to spring free from the authority of their parents, uh, bye-bye to church and they head off uh, out into the world. And they reject Christianity. And sometimes there's a rejection of Christianity simply because in our country, even still, it's too common. Uh, We do have a Judeo-Christian foundation related to our nation. Christians still are a dime a dozen. I don't say it. Uh, derogatorily, but there's a lot of Christians around. So here you've got the kid that looks and says, man, I know more Christians than that, and I don't want to just be known as a Christian. I want to be, you know, known as something a little bit different. And so they go off and they become a Rastafarian or something like that. And then when they come to the family reunions and they tell everybody or their schoolmates, what are you into now? Oh, I'm a Christian. Uh, Vanilla. Christian, I know more Christians. They come and they say, listen, I'm a Rastafarian. Really? You are? Tell me a little bit more about that. And it's a kind of an addicting kind of thing. Then you become a Rastafarian or whatever you want to become, and then that belief system beats you up, and then you appreciate what you had and the wisdom of from the Lord, and you come back to being a Christian. It's funny. It's kind of the story of one of the missionaries that's gone out of this church raised in a wonderful Christian home and uh, had a tremendous foundation. And yet it was too common. There was just too many Christians. It wasn't, didn't make him unique enough in the United States of America or whatever in his own mind. And so he went all around the world to try and discover, uh, you know, the meaning of life and all of these things and then came to discover that it was right under his nose the whole time he'd been raised in it. But, you know, everyone has their path. Everyone has their way in which this becomes a settled issue in their life. And for some people, they take that path. And the proverb speaks to uh, the fact that it is much wiser to uh, just accept the wisdom when you've been raised in a godly home, to accept that wisdom. You're already in the truth. The wisdom is, has been close to you all your life. Verse 25, a foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him or to the mother. So here we have kind of a repeat of the truth of verse 21. Again, one of the greatest sorrows in life is having uh, that kind of a child. So what do we do with them? We just write them off. Black sheep, forget it. Don't mention their name in my presence. No, 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 no. What do we do? We pray for them. And then we get everybody that we know that is... Uh, we know to be a prayer warrior, and we ask them, would you please, please pray for my son? Would you please pray uh, for my daughter? They are a grief to our heart. They are a bitterness to, uh, you know, their mother and all. And I always figure that if the Lord can save me, he can save anybody. And I really believe that if the Lord saved you, he can save anybody. little more than with me. And if the Lord can save the Apostle Paul, talk about a blockhead, thick-headed, I mean that in that sense. Whew! 
then the Lord can get through to anyone. And boy, he can do some stuff to get through to them. And uh, so uh, better not to get uh, brokenhearted over it or bitter over that. Uh, It's certainly we experience those emotions, but uh, to take that then to prayer. Verse 26, also to punish the righteous is not good, nor to strike. And the idea is flogging or whipping uh, princes. Uh, for their uprightness. And so here we see the perversion of justice again condemned uh, by Solomon and, and the idea is that only a wicked and a perverse generation punishes the righteous and punishes uh, righteous leaders. That's to turn everything upside down. If you're going to punish righteousness and you're going to punish um, righteous uh, people and you're going to protect evil, then evil's going to prevail in that nation and the result is you're going to end up with a nation that nobody wants to live in. And we've begun to take steps down that path in this country. Uh, the righteous are the bad people. And um, more and more people are getting bolder and bolder in um, putting that kind of thing forward. doesn't make any sense logically or practically, but they're being successful at the moment in our country. He who has knowledge spares his words, and a man of understanding is of a calm spirit. This is a good one, isn't it? So you've got two marks of a wise man, two marks of a wise woman. First of all, he spares his words. He doesn't, think, he doesn't talk too much. He thinks before he uh, speaks. And then number two, he's even-tempered. He stays cool uh, under pressure. Verse 28, even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. I just love that proverb, the first half of it. When he shuts his lip, as long as he doesn't say anything, he's considered perceptive. And so the quickest way for a fool to expose himself is by speaking. But if a fool never speaks, nobody knows if he's brilliant or a fool. And most of the time they'll just think you're brilliant. It was uh, James Sinclair who put it this way, he said, it's better to keep our mouth shut and let people wonder if you're a fool than to open it and remove all doubt. So, then it's funny, sometimes you're in a conversation, a group of people, and there's this one guy or this one gal, and they never say anything. They're a little bit intimidating, aren't they? Because you don't know if they're too dumb to enter into the conversation or that they're so smart that they don't want to waste their time. And, uh, and, uh, so it, it's, it's building a case for um, keeping quiet uh, when we don't know what we're talking about on a given subject. And, and um, I've violated that uh, many times. But um, I certainly love how poetic and um, pictureful the, the language is. Chapter 18, look at that. We're already in chapter 18. Come on. Verse 1, a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire, and he rages against all wise judgment. So this speaks of the nonconformist. So nonconformity, it's been in for a long time, but it's not a, like a healthy or harmless nonconformity that's talking about here. It's talking about rebel, rebellion. It's the, the nonconformist who's determined to have his own way, even if his own way is at odds with uh, all counsel that is, or wisdom that is sound or established or, 
or proven. And that kind of a person that's described here is unteachable. And they become so intolerant and filled with this um, sense of infallibility or superiority that he will isolate himself from anyone who disagrees with him or he will rage against them. The problem with this is that if a person finds that they have to artificially protect their point of view uh, by artificially um, setting up something that protects it from being challenged, then all that person is doing is just confessing the weakness of their view or their argument. It's interesting that I don't know if things have changed in Greece, but it wasn't too many years ago, and it may be true even today, that for you as a Christian to land on a plane in Greece and to begin to share your Christian faith and the need to be born again and be saved and God's desire to save everyone, to proselytize related to uh, born-again Christianity, that could let you were arrested for that. Because the Greek Orthodox Church had, because of their power within the government, made it against the law to uh, propagate any kind of religious belief system other than uh, the uh, Greek Orthodoxy. And the danger related to that is, yes, it can protect you from an infusion of Islam into the nation or Scientology or Jehovah Witnesses or whatever they're wanting to protect themselves from or even born-again Christians. But once you have to set up an artificial protection for your belief system, you're just confessing that your belief system cannot withstand um, being challenged openly and being debated. This is one of the great things about Christianity in the United States. I mean, the, the freedom of speech that we have in the United States. People can say anything about the Bible or about the God of the Bible that they want, and they do. And And all of that goes on. There's no artificial protection of Christianity within the country. And what a robust, in many senses, a a Christianity that it produces. And you think about apologists who were raised up in that environment, like a Norm Geisler or Ravi Zacharias or many, many others that we could speak of related to that, in addition to, to Christians as well. And so this idea of, I've got to protect this, and um, uh, and artificially protect it, even if it means I don't put myself in contact at all with people who hold a different view. That's an artificial protection, and it's just a confession of the weakness of your position. And uh, so uh, it's not a very wise place to be. Verse 2, a fool has no delight in understanding, but in sp- expressing his uh, uh, own heart. So here's the person who's a product of a very, very um, terrible combination. He possesses a closed mind and an open mouth. So he won't listen to anything that anybody's got to say, and all he wants to do is all of the talking. And again, as we've seen before, as long as I'm talking, then I'm not learning. 
All I'm sharing is what I already know. You have to be quiet in order to listen to another person in order to learn something. And uh, so this person uh, isn't interested in, in that kind of thing at all. Uh, all they want to do is share their own view, not interested in learning at all. Sometimes you see that when you get in a conversation. Somebody will say, hey, I've got a question for you, you know, and they'll go to, you start to answer the question, and you get like three uh, words out of your mouth, and then they just jump in right, <laughs> so boom, right in there on the thing, like going to uh, uh, in, interrupt on on it, and then you try and get three more sentences at it, and, and then and they then talk for five minutes, and then you get to say three more words, and they talk for another five minutes, and you realize, okay, this person doesn't want to learn anything. Um, they just want to express their own heart. So, touche, checkmate, uncle, you win. Bye-bye. Uh, verse 3. When the wicked comes, contempt comes also, and with dishonor, comes reproach. And so wickedness has three companions always. There is no variation on this. Wickedness always has three companions. Number one, contempt. People really do despise wicked people. Number two, dishonor. That is, it brings disrespect and shame on a person. And then reproach. Uh, It brings scorn and rebuke upon uh, a person. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. In other words, again, our words reveal something more than just um, uh, what's coming out of our mouth. They reveal, Jesus says, the depths of our heart. The wellspring of wisdom is a flowing brook. And so the second half of this proverb uh, speaks of words being spoken out of wisdom. They're like a bubbling brook or a stream. They're, in other words, they're pure and they're refreshing. See, what, what's the point of all of that? Really, the second half of that proverb is an encouragement to wise people to speak, to share the wisdom that God has put into your hearts and uh, into your uh, life and how valuable and how refreshing it is to have a conversation with a wise person. It's a funny thing. The older you get, the more tight-lipped you get, the quieter you get. And um, the less you say, and it's just, and it's a, it's a bad combination sometimes, and it's something that we have to be alert to, because just about the time we've learned one or two things in life, now we're not talking anymore. Whether we think that people don't want to hear, or we're just not inclined, we don't need the aggravation, or whatever it might be, and this is an encouragement for people who have wisdom to speak up, to say something. I'm in lots of conversations where somebody says something and I'm saying to myself, don't touch it. Don't say a word. You can leave this place happy, without a care in the world, intact, whole. Don't say anything. Don't correct it. Don't uh, give another way of looking at it or whatever kind of thing, and you just you get safer and safer. And then i got to force myself more and more to say, you know, you know let's think about it this way and, and see how the shoe fits a little bit. Or, you know, that's right, but only as far as it goes. But here's where it fails, and here's why what God says is important and better than that. And so sometimes we need an encouragement. We like these verses that talk about the wise man 
is dem- his wisdom is demonstrated in not talking. Yes, that's true, and, and it's a pro- true proverb, but there's also the balance here that it's important to speak up and, uh, and to keep on talking because we are listening when wise people do speak. Verse 5, it's not good to show partiality to the wicked or to overthrow the righteous in judgment. And so this is another encouragement uh, concerning the fact that a nation's judicial system should be kept just and um, it shouldn't be a place where the wicked are protected at the expense of the righteous. The wicked should fear the justice system uh, of a nation and the righteous should be very, very confident when they resort uh, to our uh, courts of law. Verse 16, a fool's lips enter into contention and his mouth calls for blows. There are certain people, when they open up their mouth, they say a lot of different things, but basically they're saying the same thing. Hit me, hit me, hit me, somebody hit me, somebody punch me, punch me, punch me, punch me, hit me. So this refers to the loudmouthed fool who's always trying to pick a fight or trying to start uh, trouble. And uh, more often than not, uh, he's uh, successful in bringing a beating upon himself. So the proverb is in here with the idea of steering clear from that person. Have you noticed that uh, the world that we live in, the country that we live in, is getting more and more savage? What about this knockdown game? that's going on. Let's keep waiting for them to, you know, swing and miss and somebody pull out a concealed weapon. But enough about my fantasies. (laughs) Where was I? Um, But the world is, it's getting um, violent more and more. And it's getting very, well, the Bible says in the last days it'll get savage. People will turn into savages, and we're seeing it, seeing that kind of thing increase. And so the idea is there are these kinds of people who just love to fight. They love to fight. Remember a guy when I worked for the phone company, he loved to fight. He used to tell me when he would go to the bars at the end of the week on Friday and Saturday, and he'd get beat up, and I'd say, Hector, why do you do that? He says, it's how I know I'm alive. Can't you just like drink a Pepsi or have a donut or something like that? I fight, thus I am, you know. So, um, but there are, he wasn't, he was, he wasn't really in the full blown category like this is, but there are people that are just looking for that and you just turn on your heel. Don't get drawn into it. Don't be a sucker for that. Walk away and let somebody else uh, beat them up because somebody bigger and stronger and crazier uh, will come along and be happy to take him up on his proposition. Just don't you do that. Just realize there are people like that. Don't get drawn into it. Verse 7, a fool's mouth is his destruction and his lips are a snare of his soul. And so this is a, a fool is a person. His mouth is continually getting him into trouble. He's his own worst enemy and uh, his mouth will 
ultimately be uh, his own ruin. So another proverb that talks about how our mouths can get us into deep trouble. Uh, verse 8, the words of a talebearer, gossip, uh, slander, those words are like tasty trifles. And as, as wrong as gossip is and as wrong as slander uh, is and as destructive as gossip is, the sin nature loves it. It just loves it. Listen, I shouldn't, I shouldn't tell you this. We could hardly say anything to me that, to get m- my attention more readily and, and, and horror within my heart at this point. Or, listen, I'm just telling you this so you can pray about it, but don't tell anybody else. And then somebody will then say something that's a piece of gossip, and the flesh loves it. It loves gossip. It's a tasty trifle. A, t- a trifle is a, is a dessert. We know we like desserts, don't we? But they're not healthy. They're good for us. And uh, so this gossip, we like it. We like to taste it. It tastes good, but it's not good for us, not good for our inner man, uh, our spirit. And, but the part two goes on and says they go down into the inner, inmost uh, body. And so the problem with gossip is that uh, once we hear it, we do end up having to digest it. It becomes a part of us. Uh, we remember it. We retain it. If you ever heard, just been listening even innocently and somebody tells you just boom, as quick as it gets out of their mouth, they tell you something that you never in a thousand lifetimes wanted to know about anybody, let alone about that person. You say, I wish you hadn't told me that. But now it's in there. Now I got to deal with it because it's in there. So it doesn't just stay in the little ticklish place in our ears or in our curiosity of our minds. It goes into a deep place in our life, and now we got to deal with it. So no one has ever benefited by gossip, and that's why Solomon uh, warns against it. It can be fun to listen to, but it's very harmful to our spirits. Verse 9, he who is slothful in his work is a brother to him who is a great destroyer. So the person who's lazy and sloppy in his work, he's of the same bloodline of him who's a great destroyer. So we've got another warning against laziness or sloppy work here. Uh, It fills the book of Proverbs. And a person who does his work slothfully or poorly or carelessly, he is similar to one who destroys. And the reason is is because shoddy workmanship um, can be destructive toward other people's lives. It can put people's lives or their livelihoods into danger. So you're building cars or you're repairing airplanes or building uh, buildings. People's lives are going to depend upon quality work being put into those those places. I think it has something to say to uh, church leaders as well who allow their area of ministry to suffer because of laziness or a lack of diligence. It can really put... Uh, the effectiveness, and I think sometimes even the future of a church in danger. And so uh, the wise, Solomon says, are hard workers and whatever our calling is. Verse 10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. What good is a strong tower if you don't run to it? And the name of the Lord, when it talks about name in the Bible, 
It talks, it means the nature, the character. So the name, the character, the nature of God is a strong tower and the righteous uh, run to it and are safe. We're as secure as his promises. We're as secure as his strong right arm. This is through his word he spoke everything in this whole universe into existence. And the Lord said, let there be light. And the Lord said, and the Lord said, and the Lord said, and the Lord said. Then he gives you and I a promise in Christ Jesus, which he is more committed to than even the creation. Because his son's reputation is bound up in it. We are as strong and and our lives are as sure as God's word and as his power. And we can run to him in any situation and know that he will keep us safe. And that's, that's the only real protection in life. Verse 11, and this is a contrast to verse 10. The rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his own esteem. And so in contrast to the person who considers his relationship with God to be the great security uh, in life, here's the person that considers their bank account or their assets or their money uh, to be uh, their security. Nothing wrong with having money. Nothing wrong with having things. Nothing wrong with having a retirement. The Bible talks about leaving an inheritance to our children's children. There's nothing wrong with any of that. There is something wrong with trusting in it because that sets us up for uh, disappointment. The only place we're going to find peace is in someone or something that is greater than what can rob us of our peace. And uh, there's no amount of money that you can accumulate that can be a hedge against what can happen in this world overnight to strip it away. But God, he never changes, no matter what's going on uh, in the world. He's the ultimate protection. But here's the man who considers his wealth uh, to uh, be uh, his security uh, in life. And um, but he's setting himself up to be disappointed. You know, there's a lot of things in life that money is powerless in the face of. Doesn't matter how much money you have. A disease, uh, earthquakes, and most of all, death. When it comes time to die, it doesn't matter whether you. It was a, one of the biggest. Th- Remember um, uh, Jim Henson, the Muppets. You know what he died of? That a young man. He seemed very old to some of our youth when he died. But for how old I am, he died a young man. Died of pneumonia in a hospital. Worth millions and millions and millions and tens of millions of dollars. And none of it could cure his pneumonia. And save his life. And the one thing, the funny thing about money and what he's talking about here is it does not offer ultimate security. And the one area that we need ultimate security, and that is related to death. Money cannot protect us from death and it cannot prepare us for death and it cannot prepare us for the life to come. Only a relationship with God uh, can do that. And that's one of the biggest dangers of riches and wealth is that so often it keeps a rich person from trusting in the Lord. And Solomon knew a little bit about that. Verse 12. Before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty 
And before honor is humility. So the ends of pride and the ends of humility are contrasted. Pride leads to destruction. It leads to a great crash and and burn. And humility uh, leads to honor. Verse 13, he who answers a matter before he hears it, it's a shame and a folly to him. And so the importance of getting both sides of a story before we uh, run off and do something related to the situation. Because I don't know anything until I've heard both sides of a story. We call this jumping to conclusions. I've jumped to plenty of conclusions in my life, and I don't want to ever do that again. So judging a situation without having all of uh, the facts and uh, failure to do so is, uh, it tells us here, it's a folly. In other words, it's stupid and it's a shame. It leads to shame and embarrassment when all of the details are made known. There are always two sides to every situation, every divorce, every quarrel, every uh, conflict that occurs. Don't agree with a person if you haven't heard the other person's side of the story. I remember reading in a, uh, it was in a book or in a commentary or something many, many years ago, but it said whenever you're listening to someone who's talking about a conflict where you realize there's two sides to the story and you're just hearing one, when you listen to them do this, cover one ear. Sooner or later they'll say, what are you doing? I'm saving this ear for the other side of the story. It's healthy for them. And it's healthy for you. Isn't it interesting how sometimes you hear one side of the story and you're ready to go, that person, you're ready to go out and hang them. And then the other person comes in and tells their side of the story and you say, thank you, Lord, for helping me not to move on one side of the story. It is nothing like what I thought um, it was. And they told me, it's funny, we're very subjective in how we relay our side of the situation, no matter how hard we try It's our side. And so we lay it out, and then the other person comes in, and they bring their side, and then you realize, wow, okay, uh, the truth is here somewhere in between uh, the two places, and I'm glad that I didn't uh, react or jump to conclusions about uh, all of of this. A man, verse 14, uh, the spirit of a man will sustain him in sickness, But who can bear a broken spirit? And this teaches us that a broken spirit is more dangerous than a physical disease. It really is. It really is. In a physical sickness, my spirit can sustain me. But if my spirit is broken, in other words, it doesn't have any hope, then that's far worse. And the lesson that Solomon's trying to bring out here is that this teaches us to be careful that our words and our actions don't break the spirit uh, of other people, that we don't break uh, the hope in uh, other people. It's truly better to break a bone in their body than to break their spirits and uh, um, harm them in that way. I think it's also, I want to be very, very quick to add that no Christian is ever without help for a broken spirit. If you sit here tonight and say, I'm without hope. I have a broken spirit. I don't know what to do about that. 
The psalmist wrote in Psalm 34, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and he saves such as have a contrite spirit. Just start to talk to him in a whisper. He's right here. He's so close to you. He understands. I like what it said about Jesus. Uh, A bruised reed he will not break, and as smoking flax he will not quench. That was a characteristic. He never broke a person's spirit. He never went that far. He could say hard things, but he never broke a person that way. And when we find ourselves fragile and in that kind of a condition, and we don't know who to turn to related to our spirit, Lord, I don't know if I can take one more thing or one more this, and and I don't know who can understand. You start to talk to him. He always understands, and he knows just how to treat you. And so there's always a resource, somebody that we can turn to in those seasons. Verse 15, the heart of the prudent acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise uh, seeks knowledge. And so this teaches us to always be learning. Uh, A mark of true wisdom or knowledge is an eagerness uh, to always be increasing in our knowledge, should always be growing in our knowledge of the Word of God, our knowledge of godliness. It's a mark of Uh, being a prudent and a wise person. Verse 16, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. Now, uh, this uh, proverb appears to speak of the giving of a gift, not as a bribe. He's going to talk about that a little bit later. People who give gifts as bribes, and the Bible is going to condemn that. But that's not what he's talking about here. Here he's talking about a person who gives gifts to people um, is an expression of their heart. Uh, It's their desire to bless someone, to be courteous toward another person. Sometimes you invite somebody over for dinner and they come and they bring a little potted plant or some flowers or something like that. And they're not looking to say, boy, maybe we'll get a better dessert out of this as a result. They're not trying to bribe anyone related to it. It's in their heart. You've blessed me. Now I want to bless you. And when people recognize that this person has that kind of a heart, they realize that's a special kind of person. And they will then want a closer relationship with that kind of person. And they'll want their friends to know that person as well. So the heart that is more eager to give than to receive is going to find themselves in places in life and before people that they wouldn't otherwise uh, come into contact with. Verse 17, the first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. So here again, both sides of the story. One guy comes, tells the story. All right, let's go over there and put him in a headlock and beat him up together. And then he comes and he brings his side of the story and you realize, all right, wow, um, that would have been a bad move. Verse 18, casting lots causes contentions to cease and keeps the mighty apart. And uh, casting of lots was the old way, Old Testament way of seeking God's will, where two parties would come together and they would, the priest would then cast a lot for uh, is it a yes, is it a no, do we go right, do we go left, um, who gets the lamb or who gets this piece of land or whatever it might be. Both parties agree 
to the outcome of the casting of lots by the priest because everyone trusted God to then guide the lot. And so whatever happened there, everybody was satisfied, no matter how strong they were or powerful they were, because there was the recognition that someone bigger than them had made that decision. So they just made themselves uh, live with it rather than beginning like uh, the Hatfield and the McCoy, some kind of a blood feud between the tribes or between uh, the families. And of course, today, the best way that we can resolve a contention uh, in letting God resolve that contention is if both parties are willing and desirous, just allowing uh, church leadership to listen to the situation, look at it in the light of the Word of God, seek the Lord in prayer until they have the mind of the Lord on the issue, and, um, and then to bring forth uh, that solution related to Uh, the situation. Verse 19, a brother offended is harder to win than a strong city, and contentions are like the bars of a castle. So it is difficult to restore a relationship, whether it's a friend or whether it's a blood relative, um, when they are offended in some uh, dispute. In some cases, it would be easier to conquer a walled city, a gated city, a fortified uh, city than to win back the offended uh, party. And so the uh, strained relationship, Solomon says, it's like the bars of a castle, hard to remove, hard to overcome, and the lesson for us from the proverb. And I think it's a very important lesson, is that sometimes we can uh, take for granted the relationships in our life that are the closest to us. And we begin to treat um, relatives in a way that we would never treat a stranger. Have you ever done that to your husband or to your wife? Don't shout out, please. This is in the privacy of your own heart. you ever walked away and, from something and treating a loved one and said, you know, if I met a stranger on the street, I wouldn't have treated him the way that I just treated my husband or my wife or that my uncle or my nephew or my son or my daughter in that situation. It really brings shame and it brings conviction. But there's the old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. And it's something to stay on uh, guard related to. These relationships that are so close, family relationship, family was everything in the Old Testament. And not to take that for granted and to just play fast and loose with those relationships, treat them as nothing, and then hurt people's hearts, uh, treat them poorly in those relationships. Because once that's done, to undo that damage can take a lot of work and a lot of damage can be done. And I think it's so important for those of us who are married to really, really uh, consider this, how often people are married for a length of time. And it depends upon the couple. Sometimes it happen, starts to happen very, very early, the disrespect with which they treat one another and um, in a way that they would... If, if it was ever out in public, they, we'd be ashamed of it and um, the damage that can be done in a way that we wouldn't treat anybody else. And so the importance of being careful with these relationships that are important to us, but sometimes we don't realize how important they are to us until we've done some real damage, and then now we're heading into damage control, 
and it's going to take a while to fix um, what those words that came out of my mouth did uh, to the relationship. And that's a good proverb, and that's uh, good wisdom. We'll stop there tonight, and we'll pick things up in verse 20 uh, next week. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Did any of the Proverbs that we look at tonight hit close to home anywhere at any time? No, I know, not here. But if I'd have taught it at Shelter Cove, there would have been a lot of conviction over there. Yep, there sure would have. But, you know, we're, you know. I only say that because Garth is over there and I love them all so much and pray for God's blessing upon their church and their new pastor and all the good things that God's got planned for them. Now, these are good things to hear, aren't they? I feel a little recalibrated myself, ready for a new week in this cold, cruel world, experience the power and the strength of God. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for the major tuning and the fine tuning that you have done in our hearts through your word. We want to be wise people, Lord, not just because we want to experience the blessing and the benefits of that, but we want all of that. But we want the world to see a different kind of person in us and then be drawn to a different kind of God who rules our life. And so continue to make us wise, Lord, for your glory and for our good. Thank you for our time in your word tonight and the part that it has played in accomplishing that in our lives. And, Lord, we pray for one another and we ask where any of these Proverbs tonight have uncovered a major, major... um, flaw or sin um, a lacking in someone's life that you would come alongside that and not just let that proverb go in one ear and out the other but Lord that you would bring hope to that person's life And we pray, Lord, that as they seek you to say, Lord, I want that to change in my life. I'm tired of that. I'm done with that. That you would confirm your word with accompanying signs and wonders, Lord. And that you would bring that truth of that proverb or those proverbs to full fruition in their lives. To your glory, Lord. To the encouragement of their faith and to bless their lives. We ask these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, 